0: Good morning. I always say at work, I'm not the problem-solving guy, I'm the problem-preventing guy, and I see that must have bled over here to Hope Church. Usually I borrow the music person's uh, stand, and then when I get done, I always end up grabbing the last song in his papers and take them with me, and they walk up, and <laughs> now I have my own stand, so <laughs> you're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we are continuing in a series. If I can find it, The Good Life. It's somewhere. Help. <laughs> what am I doing wrong? We were? Okay. That'll, we'll do it. That'll do it. Thank you. <laughs> That's me, by the way, not them. I'm <laughs> We're continuing a series on the good life. Last week, Mike opened uh, talking about praying for ourselves. I'm going to pick that up and take it another step today, talking about praying for for others. And just as a bit of a disclaimer, every single thing that Mike said last week was exactly what I was going to say today. So he stole all of my thunder. So if this is a little dry today, you can blame Mike. <laughs> it's his fault. Well, we're looking uh, today at James five sixteen through eighteen. Our verses are printed in our worship bulletin. It says, uh, "Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed." The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. You hear a lot these days about... uh, It don't matter. We'll just leave it. Okay. You need the flash drive back. I got that. You hear a lot these days about people debating prayer. And they even do scientific studies now saying, you know, we did these tests and experiments, and prayer doesn't work, and prayer doesn't help, and prayer doesn't make a difference. And those things just drive me crazy because. In order to reach a conclusion like that, it predisposes that if it did work, you would somehow know exactly what the outcome is. I laugh at these people. It's kind of like somebody trying to return a defective dog whistle, because they buy it, they blow into it, and nothing happens, so they think, well, this thing is defective. No, it's not. You just can't hear it unless you're a dog. (laughs) So just because you didn't hear it doesn't mean it doesn't work. And a lot of these tests and experiments that conclude that prayer doesn't work, I really wonder what they believe it would do if it did work. Because obviously what they expect to have happen isn't their results, so therefore they draw these erroneous conclusions. And what really got me thinking about this was years ago we're studying in the New Testament And one of the things that we came across in there is that you would assume that if anybody knew how to pray effectively, it would be Jesus Christ, right? Who else more than him would be qualified to not only pray, but pray effectively? So... Like Mike pointed out very accurately last week, even Christ's prayers were not answered to his own satisfaction or the way that he perhaps would have liked to see them answered. The thing that got a hold of me years ago is we were studying the healing miracles of Jesus, and it was really no different than today. When people try to do experiments on prayer, they say, well, prayer doesn't work because we prayed for these people, but they're still sick or they're still broke, or they still died. But if you look at Christ's track record, we laid out the healing miracles of Jesus out of the New Testament, and there's a bunch of them, and those are just the ones that are recorded. And you know what every single person has in common that Christ healed? They all died. (laughs) They're all dead. Even the ones he brought back from the dead died again. (laughs) So when you think about that, the conclusion is, what's the point? Like my friend Jay was saying, what exactly is the point of all this? If they do this, they pray, and then they die, then it's like it didn't work. Or, obviously the goal or the result of prayer must have been something different than just sustaining people's life or giving them comfort in this life. And that's intriguing because, you know, this is the thing that made me look a little deeper into what exactly is the point of all this. If prayer did work, what would that look like exactly? And to give a little background to this, you know, I thought that... uh, As much as I'd love to dive into the nuts and bolts of this and tear apart some verses, I thought I'd, as usual, go off here into left field for a while and simply tell you a story. And the story that I'm going to tell you is one that laid the foundation for everything I believe about intercessory prayer. And it's a story that greatly impacted me. It kind of reminds me of testimonials, late-night TV, cable TV, that's all you have, testimonials, trying to sell you stuff, Te- because testimonials work. If I buy a book, that am, am I actually going to invest in reading it and implementing it, be it a diet or a get-rich-quick scheme or even the Bible? The main motivation I've found in life is seeing, seeing it work for somebody else. And based on the results they got, that inspires me to do it. So that's why I couldn't have thought of a better place to start talking about praying for others than the way that this was presented to me, not out of a book, but out of a personal experience. As some of you know, I drank up 10 years of my life. And coming off the heels of that, I got out of rehab, and uh, or we call it the spin dry, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got into a recovery program, and the first year I spent sober but miserable, white-knuckling it. And I, for the life of me, I couldn't put together this God thing. I had just spent 10 years of my life talking myself out of any kind of a belief in God studying alternative beliefs that explain the Bible without having there be a real God to explain it. I'm reading books about Adam and Eve or ancient astronauts and stuff like that. So, you know, so indiv- because the world's job is to lie. Just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean you don't believe in anything. It just means that you believe in something else. The world's job is to provide that something else. So after 10 years of not only drinking my brains out, but of conning and convincing myself that my Christian upbringing was not true, then I was crash-landed into a program where my only hope of recovery was to believe in God. Oh, great. Now what do I do? So I struggled greatly that first year, and I tried and I could not conjure any faith in God. And in my desperation, a guy I knew talked me into driving all the way up into northern South Dakota with him uh, to a very remote area and spending a weekend at a Christian monastery, a Catholic monastery up in uh, near Marvin, South Dakota at a retreat. Now that's salesmanship right there, <laughs> talking me into blowing an entire weekend in a monastery. Really? <laughs> So you know I was desperate to actually think about this and go, somehow, strangely, that sounds like a good idea. (laughs) And I'm so grateful that I made that trip because when I got up there, I met one of the most fascinating characters that I have ever had the pleasure of meeting, a guy by the name of Rocky. Rocky physically was a huge man. Everything about this guy was larger than life, and not in an attractive way. (laughs) He looked like the giant in the Jack and the Beanstalk story. If you could imagine what that guy must look like, that was Rocky. Rocky was huge his fingers were huge and his hands were huge and he was just had this barrel chest and he he was bald and he had this scar running across from his forehead across his face so he had one good eye and one glassed over and and he didn't have a neck. It was just went straight from his head to his, these rolling shoulders. And I'd watch him in the ca- when he would eat. He would wrap his arms around his plate and shovel food in like this. And, and he had this big, booming voice. And I mean, some guys you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. I wouldn't want to meet this guy in a light alley. And he had a story that made it sound like I had done all my drinking in Disneyland. <laughs> he got the scar from, uh, he broke about every bone in his body surviving a plane crash. And he just, I mean, he had just a, a huge guy with a bigger life and a, and a bigger spirituality. But at first glance, you didn't know he was a gentle giant. You just saw the giant part. And I got to know Rocky and he sat down and he told me his story. And he explained to me how he got sober. See, Rocky was a town drunk in one of these many little farming communities in Minnesota, just like South Dakota. And every one of these little towns in the Midwest has two things. They all have a town drunk and the town crazy lady. (laughs) You know, the town bag lady, the the crackpot, the eccentric person. And Rocky was the town drunk for this little farming community. I could relate to that. I had a distant uncle who was the town drunk of Hurley, South Dakota, where I grew up. But Hurley was such a small town, we couldn't afford a full-time town drunk, so we had to actually share him with Davis and Turkey Ridge. (laughs) But, But Rocky's job was to be the town drunk in this little community in Minnesota. And One night, he was on a typical drunk, and the drunk ended badly, as they always do, and Rocky Rocky ended up bleeding in a ditch, and the local crazy lady found him laying there and tended to him and patched him up and got the bleeding to stop and tended to his wounds, and nothing unusual about that. It was just another normal Saturday night followed by another Sunday morning coming down. But it was only in hindsight that Rocky could look back and realize that that's when the trouble started. Because shortly after that, Rocky was the recipient of a series of spiritual experiences that literally scared him into recovery. Woo-woo-woo kinds of things that terrified him to the point where he literally had to quit drinking and get into recovery. He re- he. Related stories like one afternoon, he's drinking in a little tavern and the bartender was in the back room and he said a ball of light floated into the bar and chased him out of the back door. There was another story I remember him telling of one night in the middle of the night, he's driving around on these dark gravel roads in the middle of nowhere, drinking out of a bottle and driving this old car. When all And it gets dark out there in the country. And he's driving around, pitch black out, and just like that, his car quits. It is dead. There's no motor, there's no lights, nothing. It dies. So he gets out with the bottle, of course, and starts walking down this gravel road. And he says, all of a sudden, it started to get light out. It got bright like it was the middle of the day, even though it was the middle of the night. And it terrified him to the point where he throws his, <laughs> throws his bottle into the ditch And he falls flat on his face in the middle of this gravel road, terrified. And it was so bright out that he could see all these details in the distance. He could see the farms. He could even read the family names on the silos of these farm places in the distance. So he falls flat on his face, and finally he gets up enough courage to just peek out of his eye. (laughs) And realizes it started to get dark again, until finally he's standing in the pitch he, he's laying in the pitch black, dark again. So he gets up and runs back and finds his car and turns the key, starts right up, turns the lights on, everything works, and he gets out of there. The next day he goes back to find that bottle he threw in the ditch, of course, and he found that spot, and it's exactly the way he remembered it. It's all the details and the same name on the same silo. And it was events like that that terrified him to the point where he quit drinking. And after he got into recovery, like myself, he was told that his only hope of survival was to develop a relationship with God. So he eventually returns to this church of his youth. And he's sitting there in his service, and he looks over, and lo and behold, there sits the local bag lady, that local eccentric crazy gal that had helped him years before or maybe it was months before, but the gal that helped him. And as soon as the service ended, that old lady makes a beeline over to him and points this crooked finger in his face, and she says words to him that he claimed he never forgot. She points at him and goes, I prayed you sober, young man. (laughs) And he says it was a little light came on in his head. And it had never dimmed, even though that was over 42 years prior. He said, a little light came on in his head, and he knew at that instant that that old lady had told him the God's absolute truth. And he never doubted it. That she had indeed prayed him sober. And subsequent to that, Rocky went on to help literally thousands of other people recover from their addictions. He made a life's work of it. And... At the end of that, he had looked back in hindsight and he drew some conclusions in working with all of these other addicts and alcoholics and addictive people. And it was his opinion, based on his vast experience, that no one had ever gotten sober unless they had somebody else praying for them. And he always challenged people to tell him or to go and figure out who it was. And he laid that challenge on me. And it wasn't an easy thing for me to get the answers to because I was raised by very Christian parents. But you never talked about God in our family. The three taboo topics in our home was God, love, and sex. You never heard those three things ever mentioned. And it wasn't because my parents weren't godly people, but they were old. I was raised by old people. My parents were older than most of my friends' grandparents. <laughs> my dad, and just as an example, I usually tell to point out how big of a generation gap there was growing up. My dad was this eighth-grade educated farmer, and back in the 70s, everybody in town, all the kids were on the dope. All the kids, they're all on the dope. <laughs> so he tells my mom to have the drug talk with me. And I swear to God, this is exactly what mom says. She sits me down one day and tells me, if you ever go to a... That's my mom voice. (laughs) If you you ever go to a party, make sure you don't set your drink down because someone might put marijuana in it. (laughs) Now, I'm not from Colorado, but I'm pretty sure (laughs) that's not how it works, but... So, of course, from that time forward, every time I went to a party, I intentionally set out an extra drink <laughs> in the hopes that the pot fairy would bless me with a dime bag. But <laughs> my mom was a notorious liar. There's no Easter bunny. There's no. There might be an Easter bunny, but there's definitely no pot fairy, so it's worth a shot. <laughs> so. The challenge was to go and bring up the subject of God and prayer with my mother, which made me very uncomfortable, but I decided I have to know. So I drove down there one afternoon and sat down with my mom, and I just said, I don't suppose back when I was drinking that you ever prayed for me, did you? And she gets this really weird look on my face, and she says to me, Oh, Marty. She called me Marty, I don't know why. She wanted to name me Marty. She had a shot. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's pretty bad when you have an alias with your own mother. <laughs> but I went down there, and, and she looks at me funny, and she goes, oh, Marty, she goes, she says, you have prayers stacked up in heaven this high. She says, I pray, oh, I pray for both you and your brother every single day. And a little light came on. And it never went out. Because I believed at that point that my friend Rocky was telling me the God's absolute truth. And that prayer truly does matter when we intercede for others, and it truly does make a difference. Because in talking with Rocky, you know, he. Another challenge he laid on me, he looked at me. The first thing Rocky ever said to me was, he didn't look at me and say, where are you at with God or where are you at with Jesus? He looks at me with that eye and goes, where are you at with Satan? (laughs) But it was only through convincing me that evil was real that I could back into a belief in God. Because where I came from, I wasn't sure if there was a God, but I knew there was a devil. I'd seen evil. I knew evil was real. And that's where we had to start. But another thing that Rocky did for me was he looks at me and he, he says, tell me what happened the night you got sober. And I tell him this story, which at some level seemed like a whole bunch of completely weird, unrelated events. But in hindsight, all of these events formed a perfectly straight line. Had any one piece of that been any different than it was, I would have had, that night would have had a whole different outcome than me checking myself into a treatment center at three o'clock in the morning. And that's how everything just kind of mystically came together. But I tell Rocky this story, and you know how you know bartender stole my car keys, and I got home, but I couldn't get in my house, so I had to get in the cab and go drink my way back across town where. You know, I've got my keys and drove myself to treatment. And then he looks at me in his wisdom and says, now tell me what really happened. (laughs) (laughs) And I found myself telling him a different version of the same story. The part I had left out was the part where I was laying in a snowbank outside of a cheap beer joint in a very bad part of town. When I had what some would describe as a spiritual experience, a moment of clarity, a flash of honesty, that eternal instant that Max Lucado talks about where it was like the hand of God held my lying lower nature at bay long enough so I could see things the way they really were, not the way my lying mind always told me there were that things were. And at that point, I didn't have anybody left to blame. And I saw for the first time what my problem really was. And I've since learned that everybody who gets it has a similar moment of clarity, a similar experience where they're, they're, they are enlightened. Like the Bible says, their eyes are open from the inside out. The scales fall from their eyes. you know, And that is really the catalyst, I believe, for change. That, in, that moment of clarity. So, you know, I thank God for, for meeting him and, and the things that he related to me. And it leads to the question then, like my friend Jay was saying, and what a great lead into this. If God is not Santa Claus, and our purpose in praying isn't simply to get stuff, or have him fix our problems, or or make everything okay, or to insulate us from pain, then what is the use? What is the purpose? Why should we pray for ourselves, as Mike talked about last week, or pray for anybody? What difference, (laughs) Hillary Clinton, what difference does it make? But what difference does this make? And you see, I believe first and foremost, the main purpose of prayer I could summarize in one word. Relationship. Relationship. Connection. People that are experts in relationships, be it marriages or Raising families or relationships in business, they all tell us exactly the same thing. They tell us of the importance of communication. If a marriage is to survive, if your family is going to stay together, if your business is going to succeed, you have to invest invest heavily in communication. Our relationship with God is no different than our relationships with each other. Prayer is talking to God. Meditation is listening to what he has to say. God speaks to us through his words, his written words. I remember how that was laid on me years ago. One of my spiritual advisors says, if God were to talk to you today, you know what he would say to you? What? Same thing he said yesterday. <laughs> God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But you see, God wrote it down, so I can't screw it up. (laughs) Everything God has to say to us, he's already said. So God communicates through the written word, but he also communicates through our hearts, through our spirits. And that's how this thing works, but it's a two-way street. The key to all of this, I believe, is it really boils down to our conception of God. That is the gospel. Pe- Malcolm Smith, a great, great preacher, used to ask the, con- the question, what a- the, go- the word gospel means good news. What exactly was the news and what made the news good? That's perfect. The gospel message that they carried in the first century was a message, a revelation of the true nature and character of God, as modeled through his son. See, that was the message. The message is simply, there is a God, and that God is friendly. That God is attractive. That God is a loving God. He not only loves you, he likes you, (laughs) which is sometimes harder to accept than the fact that he loves us. He likes us. And you see, based on that foundation, everything in this Bible clicks. But if you miss that piece, you can memorize this and you can believe every word it says, but you're still going to draw the wrong conclusion. If I could only teach people one thing, if I could stick a flash drive in my head, download one bit of information, and then stick it into other people's head and download it, without a question, the one piece that I would try to give people is an accurate conception of God. You miss that, you miss it all. You get that, you get it all. But it always hinges on what is God like exactly. To the degree that you believe that God is unattractive, that you believe God is mean, God is mad, to the degree you believe God is frustrated with you, disappointed in you, to the degree that you think God is, is... unhappy with you or he's vengeful and punishing to the degree that you believe God is going to get you to the degree that you think God is indifferent to you or that he is a control freak trying to make you do things you don't want to do to the degree that God is unattractive is the exact degree that you are deceived you do not have a conception of God you have a misconception and that is our real problem what's wrong with us more than anything mm-hmm. that is what's our that's what's wrong with us a misconception of god so that's what the new testament is really all about a revelation of how god's character really is and that's where prayer is designed to facilitate that relationship see sometimes we think things of our heavenly father that we would never really, never think of an earthly father even if you have the best parents in the world do you only call them when you need something maybe <laughs> but do you only, when you talk to your parents and tell them about problems you have or issues are you only telling them then them those things so then you can expect them to fix it or do you just want to make a connection, to have some understanding, to, have, to build a relationship? Here's what's going on in my life. I don't expect you to pay for this. I don't expect you to fix this. I just want you to know what's going on. And that becomes a huge reason why we pray. To let God know what's going on in our lives and in here and in here. Not just so he can make it better, but so we know that he understands, even though he does anyway. So part of the huge point of prayer is relationship. It's not there to fix it, but rather support us through it. Huge difference. The second thing that prayer, I believe, involves especially for others, is if we're not getting what we're asking for in prayer, it might be because we're asking for the wrong things. Going back to the example of a perfect parent. If you, if you have a young child and your child comes up begging for cookies or begging for candy, a good parent is going to take that cue and go, oh, he's hungry. So I'm going to steer him towards something healthier. Just because he's asking for candy, what he really needs is nutrition. How about some fruit? How about having lunch? How about I make you a sandwich? So just because he asks for something doesn't mean that's exactly what you give him. But it's a cue to know that, oh, I can pick up on that and steer him towards something healthier. That's a big part of effective prayer. And as we mature... We learn to ask for righter things. So that leads the question, what are the right things? What do we need? I used to ask God for what I want, but my wants are insatiable. You know, I want it. What do I want? I want it all. (laughs) What do I need? Not that much. And you see, to differentiate between our wants and needs, this is why I love the prayers that you find in 12-step recovery. There's a lot of prayers involved in the textbook we use in AA. But if you lay out all those prayers in that book, and believe me, there's a lot of them, what you find is all of those prayers end up being prayers for one of three simple things. All we really ask God for are knowledge, willingness, and power. You give me those three things, and I can move mountains. I can walk through walls. If I don't have those three things, I'm not, I'm, nothing is ever going to change. The Bible says my people die for lack of knowledge. Part of my challenge is I don't know. The knowledge I do have is wrong. <laughs> the way they taught it to me is half of everything you believe is not true you're going to spend the rest of your life figuring out which half. (laughs) And that turned out to be very accurate. Our challenge in this world is deception. So we all need knowledge. We need truth. But my old conception of God was that God gave us knowledge of his will and then went like this and go, okay, let's see how you do. It never was explained to me that the same God who gives us knowledge of his will in the same package will always give us the will to do it and the power to do it. Why? Because God's not stupid. (laughs) There's no point in telling me to do something if you know I can't do it, is there? See, that was the whole purpose of the Old Testament. Why did God only give them knowledge of his will? Because that's all they asked for. Okay, Lord, they begged for that law. Tell us what to do, Lord, and we'll do it. Well, uh, it's not going to work. Oh, come on. Okay, here you go. Ten simple rules. They couldn't even keep that a day. So you see, they knew what God wanted, but they didn't have a change of heart that we have in the New Testament. They didn't have God's spirit given to them where they had the willingness you see, that turned out to be the key to everything, I believe. As you've heard us say many times before, this is what authentic spirituality looks like. Ready? God will always change our behavior by changing our desire. That's great news, because what that means is you still get to do exactly what you want to do. You just find as time goes on, you want to do different I don't want to do the things I used to do. I don't get off on those things anymore. Conversely, I want to do things that used to seem like a turnoff or a buzzkill. But it's all about a change of heart, a change of desire, the willingness. And thirdly, it's about God giving us the power to carry it out. You give me the knowledge, the willingness, and the power to do something, I guarantee it will get done. And if that's what we really need to seek for ourselves, as an extension, if we're going to pray for others, that's what they really need. And if I were to add a fourth thing, because the definition of intercessory prayer, by the way, I believe is simply prayers we say on the behalf of others that they ought to be saying for themselves if they had a clue. (laughs) We're just stepping in the gap and saying, this is what this person ought to be saying. (laughs) But since he isn't, we're going to carry that burden for him or for her. So what better thing to seek from God for others than that he gives them knowledge, willingness, and power? And if there's a fourth thing, one of my spiritual advisors, a Father Rock, a different Rock, Father Rock had an old Catholic friend priest that he was a friend with, and that guy had the craziest prayer. He used to be fond of saying, I pray thee pain. What? Keep that guy away from me. (laughs) That's the last guy I want praying for me. I pray thee pain. You see, he understood that pain has been demonized in our modern society. If you have a pain, there's something wrong with and the pain becomes the problem. So we don't treat conditions anymore; we just offer pain relief. I learned that one time. Uh, the wife had a cat that hurt its time jumping off of something, and and so it, you know we took it to the vet to have it x-rayed to make sure nothing was broken or damaged. It turned out it was just you know some muscular things. So on the way out, of course, you know the vet charge sells us some pain meds. And I'm driving home, and like, that's nuts. You know, why would you give pain meds to this animal? Yeah, if it's suffering, but you don't want to relieve it of too much pain, because then it won't know it's injured, and it'll just keep re-injuring itself. It needs that pain, so it doesn't, so it can it can know to not overextend itself, so it can heal. So I took them. No. I <laughs> No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. <laughs> but I thought, why would you give these pain meds to this animal? And you see, that's how we all are in modern society, though. See, putting out the pain without addressing the problem to me is as crazy as if your car has a red light that comes on on the dashboard. That means something went wrong under the hood. You got to open that hood and find the problem and fix it. The solution is not to take a screwdriver, punch the red light out, and then keep driving, thinking, "Well, I fixed that problem." I was riding with some gal one time, and she had a piece of tape over her oil light in her car. And goes, Don't look at that. <laughs> I'm thinking you might want to look into that. <laughs> so, just because the light went out doesn't mean the just because you punched the light out doesn't mean that the problem went away. Thank God for pain. We hate it. It's miserable. We don't seek it. We don't enjoy it. But it's, it's ultimately the only motivation that most of us have to affect change. If I hurt any less, I never in a million years would have done the things I had to do to get well. Never. But it was only through pain that I was able to seek the knowledge, the willingness, and the power from a source greater than myself. So I think that if we're going to pray and have prayers answered, it works better if we ask for the right things, what we need, not what we want. And the final piece of that is that I always thought that if God were God and if he loves us so much, he ought to just fix everything and make it okay. But In those cases, what I really looked at God for was problem solving. But you see, God is not the God of problem solving so much as the God of problem preventing. If you follow the instructions in this book, what you will find is a way of life where we're not creating the problems and creating the chaos to begin with that we then need to be solved. Not always, but more and more. We've learned that God's rules are purely practical. If we do the right things, we don't have the problems that a lot of people on this planet have. Because we're not creating them. And that makes perfect sense to me today. It's kind of ironic, like if you look at some of the rules for sexuality. I know guys that rejected those things 100%. Archaic. You know, I don't follow any of those. And then they have a daughter. (laughs) And it's just nothing short of miraculous how they dust off those archaic rules that had no bearing in the 21st century. And all of a sudden they revisit that and go, these make really good sense all of a sudden. (laughs) These are going to become my rules for my daughter. And that's how God thinks. As a perfect parent, he loves us enough to tell us the truth, and he loves us enough to try and warn us not to do certain things that will inevitably cause us pain and problems. No different than how we raise our own children. And the final part of this is, okay, what's the result of all this? If we are praying, it's really about love and service. Is the ultimate result of what we're praying for others, you know who we're not praying for when we're praying for others? Ourselves. I often think of prayer for others. Intercessory prayer is like a recalibration of our hearts. To learn to focus more on other people and less on ourselves. And a lot of times, in praying for others, we start to ask the right question, which is, what can I do? How can I help? And we start to understand that in this communication with God, sometimes the right answers flow in where we realize that we don't need God himself to come down out of a cloud or send his holy angels to do things. We can be those people. We can act as his agents to help people in a lot of practical ways. So through praying for others, I think it really helps us to focus on others which gets us out of ourselves and puts our own problems in the pro- proper perspective and helps us to to not only love others but to serve them and some of the verses i put in here you know kind of clarify that and to wrap this up then the final piece of this and then we'll be done Somebody's, you know like many people you know have asked the question okay God is God, and God's going to do what God's going to do, and and do we add anything by praying, or do we leave anything out by not praying? Is there some magic to all of this? And the final piece that, that occurs to me is that praying for others is really the same process as sending somebody a package and including a return address. See, When you send a package, there's two reasons why you put a return address on it. One is, if that package gets lost, they can return it to the sender. Now, I'm seeing Terry look at me funny over here. He's a postman. (laughs) They don't lose mail anymore. (laughs) That was years ago before Terry got in there. (laughs) In theory, hypothetically, if a package were to get lost or misplaced, <laughs> did I say that right? Yeah. Then conceivably, in theory, they could send it back to where it came from. <laughs> so that is one reason why you would have a return address. But a more important, more practical reason you would put a return address on a package is so people know who sent it to them, know where it came from. I sent my father-in-law uh, a Christmas present one year, and he loved it. Didn't know who gave it to him. (laughs) The return address said (laughs) Amazon.com. He gets this thing in the mail, and wow, this is really cool. You know, a really nice flashlight. No clue that we had sent it to him, but, you know, if it has a return address, you can give credit where credit is due. You see, I was just talking to a friend of mine about this whole thing yesterday, and he said, imagine if God just delivered things on cue automatically. How would you know it was God? If you didn't ask him to do something, and then he did it anyway, you could give the credit to anything or anybody. I'd probably credit it to luck. <laughs> wow, that was really lucky. But you see, a coincidence is really a miracle where God chooses to remain anonymous. <laughs> but I don't think God really wants to remain anonymous. I think he wants us to know that he loves us going full circle back to relationship and back to an accurate conception of him. So when somebody tells me that something happened in my life and they were praying for me, I take great comfort in that. And if things do, by chance, tend to go okay, I know why. And it's not me and it's not them, it's God. But what if it doesn't go the way that I think it ought to? And you see, this is the last piece, and then I'll shut up, I promise. This is it. This is the point. We're always trying to pray to overcome the will of a reluctant God instead of praying to align our will with that of a caring, loving God. It's like we approach God in prayer going... You know, if I pray long enough or hard enough or if I suffer enough, maybe God will take pity on me and I can con him into doing what I want to do. Maybe if I make a deal with him, he'll do this thing the way I think it ought to be done. So we plead and we beg and we we make deals with him. try Just assuming once again that God's like, oh, no, 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 no. You see... Again, our conceptions are wrong because we're asking God to fix things he already fixed. His solution isn't to fix it in this world necessarily. His ultimate solution is to take us out of here. He's already made every provision, but we not only need to differentiate in prayer between us and them, we need to differentiate between now and then. The longest you can stay sick, the longest you can be confined to a wheelchair, the longest you can be in prison, the longest that you can stay broke and poor, the longest you can struggle with health issues is not forever. It's a limited number of years. What's the longest life sentence in prison? Maybe 50-some years is the record, you know, maybe 60. But what's 60 years compared to eternity? What's the longest people can stay sick? What's our lifespan? At most, a hundred years. You won't, you know. But you see, compared to eternity, that's not even that long. You see, God has already promised to give us a new body, a new place to live, riches beyond measure, an inheritance. But the the irony of God's inheritance is, usually, to get an inheritance somebody has to die. To inherit something from God, we do. Not him, us. But you see, that's the ticket to having all of our problems solved forever, forever. That's the promise, and that's how God ultimately has answered all of our prayers before we even asked him. By getting into right relationship with him, he's already given us everything we need to make it right. And he will sustain us through this life, but give us everything we need and want in the next. If you want to come up, we'll do our closing song. And That's uh, just some thoughts I had on praying for others, as disconnected as it might be. But, you know, it's, again, going back to that story I told, you know, even if it seems like it doesn't make a difference, I swear to you, praying for others is huge and I encourage everybody to do it. Thank you. Lord, as we close in prayer, we're just going to turn our attention to Romans 8.26. It says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Thank you, Lord, for letting us pray for others. And thank you, Lord, that you pray for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.